Hey, good morning. How's uh, everyone doing? Good, good, okay. Um, I remember back when um, we had our church in Portland, um, I'd ask that, and every once in a while, someone would go, I'm terrible. And, um, and I would appreciate that, because um, the reality is uh, there's a lot of us in this room, and I assume, I think it's probably safe to say that not everyone is doing uh, super awesome and, and, and great. But uh, for those of you who are, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I will let you know that I have, um, like, crippling anxiety that I'm going to hit this, uh, and it's going to fall on me, or that I'm going to move in the wrong direction, and it's going to fall. So um, I thought I'd confess that right out of the gate. <laughs> for no other reason. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're taking a break from Nehemiah, uh, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Uh, while you are getting there, um, I just want to pray for our time. So if, um, if you'd take a second, we'll pray. God, thanks so much for this opportunity to be here. Uh, to be at church, and Lord, we thank you for uh, the chance to come here together and to worship, to sing, to read your word, to be with one another, and uh, God, I ask that in this time that you'd please speak to us. Uh, we all come in here in different places of belief, of faith, of doubt, of hope, of a good week, a bad week, of whatever the case may be, and uh, and we ask that, God, you please would minister to us. Uh, we're here for a variety of reasons, but um, at a minimum, we believe, God, and are hoping and expecting that you can do something supernatural in this time. Uh, we can listen to podcasts. We can listen to TED Talks. We can listen to worship music. But there is something special about this time that we get to corporately gather to seek you to meet with others, to sing, and to respond to you. And so, uh, Lord, I'm asking that in this time you would move in a way that is transformative to us, that is powerful, that's reflective of who you are and not of any of our skills or abilities, uh, but truly is a move of your spirit. And uh, would you please do that? We need you. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, um, real quick, right out of the gate, um, if you are here a handful of weeks ago um, when I taught, one of the things that I really like to do is um, to not just monologue, but is to dialogue. And so um, at the end of this, we'll do a Q&A, um, live Q&A on the spot, see how it goes. So as I'm going through this text, if there's something that comes up in your mind uh, from it that you want to ask a question on, something confusing, something you need clarification, something that just comes up um, generally from this time. Um, if you're bold enough, uh, feel free and ask it. My two caveats are, number one, I'm not Bible answer man, so I don't claim to know all of the answers. Um, number two, I am happy to say I'll get back to you. Um, and number three, if you want to email me about it, you can email me at chris at thisisouranthem.com. Again, if you're writing it down, chris at thisisouranthem.com. You can email me all your questions there. But um, it's something I enjoy doing. Um, it was really fun what we did in Portland. It's been great to do the last couple times here, um, just to be able to have a bit of a conversation uh, and not just a monologue. So. Uh, with that, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, and the reason why we're, we're doing this today as a standalone is we've been in the book of Nehemiah for, uh, for a bit now, and I want to try to kind of connect what we've been studying in Nehemiah um, to us today and looking at a New Testament passage. So 
For context, Nehemiah chapter 8, the Israelites have come back into Jerusalem. The wall has been finished. And they ask, uh, Nehemiah asks Ezra to come up and preach the word. And so for several hours... After, these, after the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, for several hours, Nehemiah goes through, or Ezra goes through the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and he preaches. And the response to it is pretty incredible. People are weeping, people are crying, people are, are joyful, people are responding in, in an incredible emotional way based on hearing God's word. And then Nehemiah chapter 9, we read 38 verses, which is just this long prayer of people remembering who God is, confessing and repenting of their sin in light of who God is. And then in chapter 10, they come back together and they make these commitments back to God. They say, we're going to commit back to our families, back to being generous, back to remembering the Sabbath. And what you really see in Nehemiah 8 through 10 um, is this remarkable revival, a renewal, awakening of these people where they realize, again, how amazing God is, how sinful they are, and yet how faithful and loving God has been regardless And it's pretty incredible. And so I want to talk today about the church um, for you and I. I want to talk a little bit about renewal and revival and things like that as we talk about the church for today. Uh, Now, I I will be honest going into it. um, I'm not sure what the word church conjures up in your mind. Um, it, it may have really positive connotations and positive emotions to it. You may think back to your time as a kid and how you've been in, involved in church your whole life. Um, maybe church is somewhat of a new thing, and so it's a little bit weird and awkward, but a really cool experience. Um, or there's a lot of hurt that's centered around your experience with church. Give you an example for me. When we stepped down from uh, pastoring our church in Portland, um, I I had a really, really rough go with my thoughts and beliefs towards the church. It kind of sent me um, into a deconstruction phase of of being very cynical about the church, about uh, the way we structure the church in the West, that it has become this consumeristic event that we go to to receive goods and services, and that's the end of it. And so it was a really hard um, couple years for me as I was thinking through what's my relationship to the church? What, what does the church exist for? Uh, I'm seeing scandal after scandal. The people that I talk to that are Christians, I, I, I don't want to have anything to do with the God that they claim to believe in. And so it was a long time of wrestling through this, of talking, of reading, of studying, and all these things to kind of get to, get to what hopefully is a healthy place of, of looking at the church as this really incredible space that doesn't exist anywhere else outside of this. And I'm not just talking about this building, to be sure, and I'm not talking about just this corporate gathering. What I'm talking about is a, is a group of people, a, a diverse group of people that are seeking to live life together, that are seeking to go through ups and downs, challenges and joys in trying to live out this vision of the kingdom of God. Uh, a people that understand that we're broken, that we've sinned, that we've fallen short, and yet that there is a God who loves us in a way that no other human can, that no other, really no other anything can, and that because of that love, we get to be honest, we get to be vulnerable, we are passionate about what's going on, we, have, we are a people that have hope different than anybody else, we are people that understand and have a framework for suffering, for pain, and for loss, and we have a vision for the future that can't be touched by anybody else. 
And so I've come to this, so over the last couple of years in particular, as I've kind of had to go through my own version of deconstruction of the church and what it means to be the church. And one of the things that for me that I've realized is as we talk about church, it's very hard because the lenses that you and I have on when we think about church are, a lot of it comes from our culture. And one of the things that our culture says more than anything is that we are a very hyper-individualized culture. And so, therefore, when we think about church, we tend to think about um, church in, in light of who we are as being autonomous, that it is about me and my relationship to it, that it's whether or not I like what's going on at that church versus this church. And we tend to view church as an individual rather than as a collective. The other thing that I've found that's been really interesting is just my own understanding when I kind of went through this, my own understanding of like, what is the church? What actually is the church? And when I would think about that question or I would ask that question, I would sometimes get answers, well, it's a building, it's what you do on Sundays, it's, it's preaching, it's, um, it's worship, it's, it's baptism, it's all these things. And the more that I've kind of studied, more that I've talked to different people, the more that I realize that um, our understanding of church, or to use the, the theological word, ecclesiology, um, is actually pretty light in the West. Um, and I'll read a provocative quote for you um, from a theologian. I like reading quotes from other people that push the buttons because it's not me saying it. I'm just delivering the mail. So um, if you don't like this, get mad at Michael Bird, um, not at me. But he says this about the church. He says, the sad fact is that most evangelicals have traditionally been ecclesiologically light. Again, theological word for the church, a gathering, an assembly. The sad fact is most evangelicals have, been, have traditionally been ecclesiologically light. However, evangelicalism's neglect of the doctrine of the church is often because of its tendency towards hyper-individualism. The evangelical church is treated as a business delivering some spiritual products and religious services for consumers who just want to get in and get out. Or, even worse, the church is just the cheerleader for a particular kind of civil religion or sociopolitical project. Here's the, here's the good line. Some evangelicals have such an impoverished view of the church that they could probably qualify for theological food stamps. Just telling you, take it up with him. MichaelBird.com. But listen to, that, listen to that line. The evangelical church is treated as a business delivering some spiritual products and religious services for consumers who just want to come in and get out. Or even worse, the church is just the cheerleader for a particular kind of civil religion or sociopolitical project. And I think when you look at the polarization within today, there we see a lot of that. That churches have, have um, chosen which camp they are going to be in, and what ends up happening is the church then becomes our view of our politics and our ideologies, and so we find a church that matches those things. Or we look at churches that are uh, really cool and have really good products, and we want to go there because of you name whatever it is that's important. But I don't think that's ultimately what we need I don't think that's what we're ultimately looking for, and I don't think that that's ultimately the view that the Bible gives us of church. And so I want to share kind of a counter view, a counter um, story of what the church is. So to do that, I want to look at it um, through two, uh, two concepts. Um, the, first, uh, the two concepts are movements and institutions. So bear with me for a little bit. We're going to do a little sociology. Uh, movements and institutions. Uh, sociologists will uh, typically describe institutions and movements this way. Uh, they'll describe institutions as typically structured top-down, 
challenging to change, united by rules, and tend to be about themselves. Institutions are generally structured top-down, meaning everything comes from the higher echelon of people and gets filtered down, challenging to change, united by rules and about themselves. Movements, on the other hand, are generally structured bottom-up, change quickly and fluidly, are united by common vision, and tend to care more about non-members than they do about themselves. You can't altogether hate institutions because at the end of the day, we wouldn't get things done without institutional practices. But when you think about where church falls in your mind, so if you have your mental grid open, when you think about church, do you typically think about it as an institution or as a movement? As an institution that's typically structured top down, usually about rules, tend to be about power and control, or a movement that tends to be a bit more dynamic around a united vision of what we believe we want to see in the world. I'll give you an example of what I think uh, a movement looks like. Um, this is one I've, I've, I've quoted for years, and I really love it. Um, here's a quick story on this. Uh, in 1856, uh, an English woman named Miss Convell uh, went to Northern Ireland because she um, was going to visit some girlfriends while she was there. While she was there, she felt really convicted to um, just walk around door to door, knocking on people's door and asking them if they had heard about Jesus. And so for about two weeks, she went door to door to door every day, knocking on people's door, talking to them about Jesus. After two weeks, she was incredibly discouraged because there was no fruit. I imagine a lot of doors being slammed in her face, and she ended up returning back to England. A couple weeks after that, uh, a young man named James McQuilkin thought about what this old woman had said and ended up becoming a Christian. He then went to the Presbyterian church in the neighborhood and told his pastor what had happened. His pastor responded and told him to get another young man who had recently been converted and to go and pray for their friends and begin to share the gospel with them. They started inviting people to come and hear the gospel. And after weeks of doing this, one young man actually became a Christian. But after a while, it started happening every single week. Then the fire started to spread, and at one point, all the young people that became Christians wanted to have a testimony service. There was so much interest, and so many people showed up that they couldn't fit into the building where they were gathered, and it is reported that from 1867 to 1870, roughly 100,000 out of 300,000 northern people in Northern Ireland became Christians. All because an older woman felt convicted, felt compelled to go door to door to talk about Jesus, never got discouraged by never seeing any fruit, went back home, and one young man hears the message, gets saved, and then what we see, revival and renewal and awakening happen. Pretty remarkable. And my question would be, do you, do you believe that that can happen still today? If you're following along with what's going on at Asbury College and some of the other colleges around the country, it would seem that God is doing a pretty remarkable thing right now. But that's the type of renewal, that's the type of movement that we can see God do. So as we talk in 1 Peter today, just to give you a brief context, uh, 1 Peter is uh, a letter that Peter wrote to a bunch of Christians that were scattered all throughout Asia Minor because of intense persecution. So you imagine a single group like this, all of us together, and intense persecution breaks out, and the whole, the whole church has to disband and move and leave. And so you have Christians that are scattered all around Asia Minor, and Peter is writing them letters primarily to encourage and strengthen them in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this challenging time. 
And what we'll read in chapter 2 continues on in that. So if you have your Bible, chapter 2, take a look at verse 4. If you wouldn't mind, please stand with me as we read um, God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, uh, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." You can have a seat. All right, uh, three quick points to get through for today. Number one, who is the church? Number two, the tension the church needs to live in. And number three, the power that the church has. Who the church is, the tension the church needs to live in, and the power that the church has. First, who is the church? Uh, Take a look at verse 5. He says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, In the Greek there, the word spiritual house is the same idea as temple uh, that we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, Peter is saying that we are being built up together as a collective And you think about, uh, for a visual, if you've seen a brick house, that the bricks getting stacked together are interdependent upon each other. And when you start to see bricks that get loose or break, it affects the entire structure of the building. This is what Peter is getting at as he's writing to these persecuted Christians. You yourselves are like living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. The problem is, like I said earlier, is that we generally view church as something we come to or something that gets uh, observed or participated in, rather than believing that we actually are a group, a collective group being built together, that we are an interdependent community. The church is not just something we come to to receive goods and services, but it is actually a people. It is something that we are a part of to walk through life. Uh, Tim Keller on this passage asks this question. He says, are you so built into the lives of each other that if you stopped coming, things would collapse? And he ties that idea about a brick being pulled out from a building. Are you so tied in, are your lives so built in with each other in the church that if you stopped coming, things would collapse? We see that the church is supposed to be an intensely communal community, but the problem is, one survey reported that 81% of Christians believe that they can live a thriving Christian life alone. 81% of Christians believe that they, live, they can live a thriving Christian life alone. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. 
church hurt, the way we've positioned the church in the West, different uh, issues that church has gone on, scandals, all these different things have in some ways led to a place where people were Christians believe, yeah, I'm actually better off without, quote, the church. I can do it by myself, and it's going to be just as good. But the problem is, Peter's telling these people who are scattered, who are dispersed, who are going through suffering, who are going through persecution in the same way that he's telling us that really we can't expect a move of God to happen when it's not in the collective. And that the design of church is not just the building to attend, but the people to be with. And so it takes a group of people who are willing to be vulnerable with one another, who are willing to forgive, who are willing to walk through hard times, who are willing to be patient and graceful with each other. We are stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. And then he says that we are to be a royal priesthood. He doesn't say that we are to have a royal priesthood, but we are, that we are a, a royal priesthood. And in fact, what he's saying to these Christians that have been uh, dispersed is that in Jesus, there are no more spiritual elites. Uh, Consider every other world religion um, outside of Christianity. One of the things that made Christianity so unique when it first launched was this idea of the fact that there are no more spiritual elites. In fact, Romans actually called Christians atheists when they first got together, because all other religions had priests, they had temples, they had sacrifice, and Christians didn't have any of that. The belief was that Jesus had died for our sins, became our mediator, and therefore, because of what he accomplished, you and I now have direct access to God. And if it is true that we are a royal priesthood, that means he has gifted each and every one of us in a special and a unique way that actually benefits and requires all of us to experience. And so Peter writes this, that we are the priests of God, that we don't need a temple. If you remember back in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, um, Jesus is having this conversation with her, and she's asking the question, which temple do we worship at? Is it the one here? Is it the one there? Which one it is? And Jesus tells her, you don't need a temple to worship anymore because of what the Spirit of God has done, because of what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. And so one of the things we see as who we are as the church is that we are living stones, a collective people to share life with, to encourage, to walk through hard times, etc. that we are to do this together. This is not a solo project, but this is a group initiative led by Jesus. Two, the, the tension that the church needs to live in. Uh, the question that I think every church and every organization needs to uh, try to answer is this. How are we going to relate to outsiders in the church, uh, of the church? How are we going to relate to people that are not involved in our church or in the church community? Again, we'll talk a little bit about sociology here, so bear with me. Um, sociologists will say that religions tend to relate to culture in, in, culture in one of two ways. Uh, they tend to relate to culture in one of two ways, either with a sectarian view or a mainstream view. Sectarian view is that they view society as us versus them. High walls and high bars to get into, and the view is that people outside are bad, wrong, and dirty. Sectarian view really is an us versus them mentality. So we get together to be clean, to be safe, to get away from all those bad, dirty, wrong people outside. 
whereas a mainstream view typically reflects the cultural elites of the day. If, uh, if you want to be accepted, adopt their values, assimilate, give in. So typically, very low bar of entry, low bar in terms of theological belief or understanding. It typically reflects the culture of the day. But the question is, as Christians, as a church, how are we supposed to respond to culture? How are we supposed to live in tension? And the answer is neither. We're neither supposed to be sectarians or have a mainstream view of outside, of the of outsider. So therefore, how, how do we engage? What does that look like? Verse 11, Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. When Peter writes saying, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's giving of the idea in the Greek that we are foreigners and strangers in the land. Aliens in the land, depending on your translation. And remember, as he's writing this, he's writing to Greeks who are from Greek cities, Romans who are from Roman cities, and what he's saying is that when you become a Christian, you have a new identity, and you have a new kingdom that you belong to. And so Christians are to be aliens and strangers in the land. Uh, One Greek historian on this actually, uh, during this time, actually considered Christians to be a different genus. He called them a different, a different species entirely because of how dramatically different Christians acted in the culture during that time. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. I think this is absolutely fascinating. Um, what were the early Christians known for? I'll give you nine examples on this. The early Christians were known for, one, they didn't go to bloodthirsty or gladiatorial events, and so they were said to be antisocial. Two, they didn't serve in the military as to, as to not promote Caesar's agenda. Three, they did not support abortion. During this time, you could actually throw babies out to die of exposure, and they did not support that. Number four, they empowered women. They empowered women far more than any other religion or any other uh, part of culture did. This would be during a time when a woman's uh, testimony was not admissible in court. Christianity was empowering women in leadership. Number five, they were against sex outside of marriage. Number six, they didn't support same sex. Number seven, they were absolutely radical for the poor, far beyond anybody else during this time. Number eight, they mixed races and classes together, which seemed incredibly scandalous. And number nine, they believed only Jesus was the way to salvation. Most people during this time would be considered polytheists. Uh, Can you identify a group that lives out this vision, one group that lives out this vision, or can hold these types of things in tension? Uh, Let me ask you this. Who does this sound like? Don't participate in military, empower women, radical for the poor, reject bloodthirsty sport, promote relationships between classes and and, uh, races. Typically sounds like what we would consider more liberal people, right? How about this? Who does this sound like? Against uh, sex outside of marriage, Jesus is the only way. Against homosexuality, against abortion. Typically sounds a bit more like the conservatives. But here what we see in the writing of Peter, in the New Testament, in the lives of the early Christians is that they didn't fit into either category. They lived in a tension that was what the world had never seen before, that you could hold these things in tension. They were aliens in their land. And the Greek word here for alien that Peter talks about is the idea of a resident alien, not a tourist. 
And so it was this idea of that you would go into a place and you would live there. You would, this is the Jeremiah 29 idea, that you would have kids, that you would make, have businesses there, that you would grow and that you would be there for the long haul, but always remembering who you are and what your identity is. Remarkable to look at the, tr- the tension that the church lived in. Verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, Do you see the remarkable balance there that Peter's talking about? Keep your uh, conduct uh, honorable so that when they do speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Peter's making the claim that you will be persecuted for your beliefs, that you will be seen as evildoers, and yet as the church, we are to be people that are so engaged and leaned in and intertwined into our neighbors and into our community that people can't help but see the good that we do and who we are. And so we live in that tension of there being persecution, of there being recognition, and there being overlap. Jesus says it like this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that is in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The tension that the church lives in is remarkable. It means that you and I will both be rejected and recognized for what we believe. But the problem is, if we're honest, and I know it's church, and so it can be hard to be honest. you get that on the drive home. Um, is it's easier to fall into one of the two camps, a more liberal or progressive view, a more conservative view, and the challenge is how do we hold those two things together? How do we live in tension, as the Bible shows us, too, especially amongst a world who is looking on. As we continue to move through this, um, Peter is encouraging this uh, group of people who are struggling and discouraged that they are a holy nation, that they are a royal priesthood, and that they are a new people in Jesus. And so he's encouraging them to not be isolated to not be independent, but to be interdependent with each other, to be built up together as a royal priesthood. I'll give you this another example from C.S. Lewis, um, because you can't go too many Christian sermons without having a C.S. Lewis quote in there. It's like, it's mandatory. Um, But he wrote this essay on friendship that I found just absolutely fascinating. Um, It's him and two other friends. One of them is J.R. Tolkien, and another friend uh, of theirs is named Charles. Uh, And Charles died recently as he's writing this, and so now this really tight group of people between him, J.R. Tolkien, and Charles is now broken up, and it's now just the two of them because Charles has died. And, and it's a little complex because it's C.S. Lewis, but, um, but try, and, try and listen in and hear what he's saying. He says, C.S. Lewis says this, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, uh, Ronald, J.R. Tolkien's face, react to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to quote myself, 
Now that Charles is taken away, I have less than Ronald, of Ronald in this. Friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition for which each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says the old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. If you pick up what he's trying to communicate there, is he's, not, he's actually saying that when you pull out Charles from this, I don't get more of Ronald, I get less of him. Tim Keller on this, on this quote says that Lewis is saying that it takes a community to actually know an individual. It takes a community to know an individual. And how much more of that is true of the church, that it takes a group of us to know each other. Uh, finally, how do we access the power? You talk about who the church is as living stones that we are supposed to be built up into a spiritual house together. You talk about the tension that we're supposed to live in, that we are to do good in the city even despite the fact that we will be persecuted for it. How do we actually get that power? Three quick ideas on this. Number one, admit that you have a cornerstone. Verse seven says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The idea here is that everything in our lives is built on a cornerstone. Cornerstone, for, if, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, is if, when building a structure of some sort, it is the thing that everything builds off of in order for the structure to be strong, to be secure, to be able to withstand hardship, to be with, able to stand storms. It is the foundation that everything else is rested on. So therefore, if the cornerstone is off, the entire building is going to be off. And Peter is saying the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, meaning Jesus, that he is the ultimate unalienated alien, that coming with the message of the kingdom and forgiveness of sin, that he was ultimately rejected, and he tells us that to line ourselves up with the cornerstone, that it is the foundation. And so we have to admit that you and I, we all have a cornerstone, a cornerstone being something that you and I go to When life gets difficult, when life gets challenging, when we fall, we all default back to a cornerstone. Martin Luther on this said, the way you know what your cornerstone is, is what do you do when your life goes sideways? Is your cornerstone your job? Is your cornerstone your family? Is your cornerstone money? Is your cornerstone success? Is your cornerstone, you can fill in the blank. And the point that Peter is making is that if our cornerstone is not Jesus, it will not be able to withstand the pressure and the storms and the challenges of life. And so it's something for you and I to consider. For me, my my cornerstone typically tends to be work or activity, whatever I can generate really quickly to try to fix a situation. Uh, And when that happens, when that doesn't happen the way, it typically is is a quick slide into anxiety and despair uh, because of control. That tends to be my cornerstone is control. How can I get in on this situation, whatever it is that's going sideways, and how can I attempt to fix it? And so the question is, where do you look for for validation, for justification? What is your cornerstone that you go to? Number two is that we are to find him precious. Verse six, behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
The idea that Peter is talking about here when he's addressing Christians who are going through challenging times is one of the ways that we access the power to see renewal and awakening in our time is that we find Jesus precious. And this doesn't mean just head knowledge. This is experience. How do you find something precious? Uh, Psalm 27.4, David says, one thing that I would seek, one thing that I would ask is that I'd be able to dwell in the temple and gaze upon your beauty all of the days of my life. So my question is, do you find Jesus precious today? And that may have a lot to do with how you view Jesus in terms of do you view Jesus as, um, as a taskmaster? Do you view Jesus as someone who only cares about whether you follow all the rules and you check all the boxes? Or do you view Jesus as someone who has a light yoke and an easy burden and who is here to give you rest? Who loves you and who is willing to die for you? Do you find him precious? And the way we, find, uh, we begin to find him precious is primarily through time spent and through experience of being able to sit in silence and stillness and enjoy Jesus. We, we learn to find him more precious as we are in community with one another and we see that Jesus has been faithful through challenging times, through other people. There's my timer. I told you, I like to keep on track. It's an, it's an OCD thing. So I, I, got, I got one more point. Um, number two, so number one, admit you have a cornerstone. Number two, find him precious. And number three, come to him and line up the cornerstone. Uh, what does that mean? It means that all other stones, all other cornerstones that you and I built our lives on, if they are not found in Jesus, are going to fail us. And I think our culture continually finds this out by putting hope, by putting desire, by putting worth into all of these things that end up failing us. And the problem with those things, you put it in your job, you put it in, your, uh, you put it in work, you put it in whatever it might be, if they fail you, they won't forgive you. And the beautiful thing about Jesus and the story is that he loves us and he is for us. One of the last ways that we find him precious and that we line up is we realize and begin to believe that Jesus found us precious. When you read through the New Testament, you see that Jesus was willing to go to the greatest of lengths to show his love and affection for us by living a life that you and I couldn't live, by dying a death that you and I should die on the cross and then three days later rising from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. And so the great message that, he's, that Peter is trying to encourage us is, is really on twofold. One is the fact that Jesus today finds you precious. God the Father finds you precious. So precious that he was willing to send Jesus to die on the cross. And in light of the fact that you right now are seen as precious by God, we get to respond and see him in the same way as precious and to build our life upon him and upon him as our cornerstone. The power that comes through that, the witness that comes through that will help us to endure times of hardship, will help us to endure times of persecution, will help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and fixed on eternity with him and will give us the power to do so. So... With that, deep breath, any questions? It's always the first one that's the hardest one to get it moving. But anyone wanna have some bit of dialogue or question around what we're talking about today? Or I'll just interpret it as the message was so clear, so compelling, so concise. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the question was sectarian versus mainstream and where, where do we as Christians fall um, in that? And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a great question because what ends up happening in this view, from, especially from a sociological perspective, is for sectarian and mainstream, the, the, the nucleus tends to be about control and power control and power and an attempt to how to live the good life. That's the vision. And so from a Christian perspective, what you see in this text, what you see in others, is that we do have views on the world. We do have views that come from Scripture that are countercultural and that are even offensive to the world. And yet, we're the one place that says all are welcome to come in. Jesus says in John 1, he says, come and see, come and walk with me. And so it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation, it doesn't matter your intellect or whatever the case may be, you are welcome to come and see. But we don't shy away from the fact that we do have beliefs and that we do have convictions that run countercultural. We just believe the fact that our beliefs of what we've seen in the scripture are actually for our joy and not for our begrudging submission, and not to be a buzzkill or anything like that. So our orientation to the world is, yes, all who are weary, anybody, come. And we believe from the scriptures what we believe because it's ultimately for your joy and for your good. And so, yes, it, it, it's both. It, and that's, that, that's the tension point. That's the, the constant tension point that the church has to learn to live in, especially as we move into, as we continue to move more secular and things like that, is to understand we, we, have, we hold doctrinal beliefs, and yet we welcome anyone to come in and experience Jesus, especially people that are different than us, believe politically different than us, believe whatever the case may be different than us. Really good question. Who else? The first one's over. Now it's safe. Uh-huh. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, no, 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 that's fantastic. Um, uh, just a point on the fact from C.S. Lewis's essay on friendship is uh, when C.S. Lewis said the first day after Charles died and as he was walking through the streets of London, uh, the lamps, the light looked dimmer because he was not there. And that beautiful image of the fact that we are supposed to be built together to be a collective singular um, vision and beauty and lamp on a hill for the world to see. I've got time for one more and then I'll, I'll invite the worship team up um, and we'll do one more. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a super good question. So um, the question was, um, for those on the groom side, if you didn't hear it, um, um, how do we work within the confines of, of the institutional church? And um, the question was directed when, when I was out of ministry for several years or out of pastoral ministry and, and trying to come back in. Um, and and I, so, I, I mean, I, like, do we have three hours? I, like, I, there's so, many, so much on that. Um, um, I, I do think as you look at um, just our landscape right now um, in the West, church attendance is way down. Um, people are staying home. People are um, not participating in church the, the way that they did prior to pandemic in a, lot of, in a lot of major cities. And we've been seeing that for years and years and years. Um, and so the question is, so like how do we actually see um, renewal and revival take place? How do we see it in a grassroots way? Um, I, I would say one of the, the things that has been most life-giving for me is one, I, I do think Sunday church is a discipline. I think it should be a spiritual, seen as a spiritual discipline. Bible reading, uh, prayer, fasting, attending, uh, attending a local church. I believe that's important because um, I believe we need to sit under the preaching of the word. We need to sit, submit under elders. It is amazing to be able to worship corporately. Um, but where I think the real life happens is actually when you spend life with other people. So you want to call them small groups, missional communities, whatever the case may be. Um, I think this is where a lot of that really takes place. It takes place over meals. It takes place over conversations around a table together. It takes place inviting neighbors to come in. Um, we have a group that meets regularly on um, on Sabbath to enjoy an incredible meal together um, and just to talk about life. And I think that's an area that is, from an evangelism standpoint, incredibly compelling because every stat is going to show you that people are more isolated, lonely, and depressed than they have been before. So I think welcoming people in, but I think ultimately when we are around a group of people that we can confess into, that we can be held accountable to, that we can be encouraged by, and that we can do all of that collectively, I think that gives an amazing amount of space for God to move. Amazing amount of space. And so that, that for me has been a huge part of my journey because for a long time, and it just be super transparent, like this whole Sunday thing was super triggering for me. Like it flooded me with all these hardships and bad memories and challenges um, and hypocrisy and all this stuff. Uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. Um, and so it was like a very hard triggering experience for me to go through this. And what has been a saving grace, for a lack of better terms, has been has been a group of people um, that I can be around who know me and who are honest um, with me and that I can be honest with. Because I, like, I'm a full-blown introvert. So like the whole Sunday morning, stand up and greet everybody, I'm like, oh God, no, please. Um, it's just a challenge. And so I, that's like, I work through that. And, but so um, I, ho- I hope that helps. Um, as, we res- as we respond right now in, in singing, I want to encourage you and I in a couple things. Um, number one, I want to encourage you that, uh, that today, that as you consider Peter's words, as you consider this message, that you know that if you are a believer, that regardless of your life right now, that Jesus finds you precious. I, just, I think you need to know that today, 
that the God of heaven, that the God of all eternity finds you precious. And in that, he has built you and I together to be an interdependent community, to walk through life together, to prophesy over one another, to pray over one another, to encourage one another, to just give a meal to one another. And he's given us this ability to live in this world with an attention to show the world that we are different and that what the world is going to hopefully see is that we are a people that love and do good despite the fact that our beliefs clash with and up against culture and that God would do something within that to awaken us to create renewal and revival in us today. And as you consider this, as we respond in worship, um, what is your cornerstone today that might not be Jesus? And where can you replace that and ask Jesus to come in? And so that might be confession and repentance of sin. That might be laying down an idol in your life. Whatever that might be for you, I want to encourage you to respond in that. There's uh, carpets up here that you can come up to and pray. There's your community group, people around you that you can pray with. But as you do, as you respond, let's remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for this passage, this 2,000-plus-year-old letter that Peter wrote to Christians who are discouraged and are having challenging times, and to encourage them and remind them of who they are in light of who you are, God. And so I pray for each and every one of us today that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us power, that you would help us to live in this world as aliens, as strangers and foreigners in a way that would be compelling to this world, that more people would see how much you love them and the extent that you have gone to bring us back to you. And I pray God as well that anybody in here who is dealing with shame and with guilt, that they would believe and and feel in a tangible way how much you love them and the fact that you find them precious today. And Jesus, we respond in worship to you because you are precious to us because of all that you do and all that you've done for us. We love you so much. And it's for your beautiful name. Amen.